This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Many things in our world and our culture have gone from being handmade with their fingers, with their hands, with their eyes, you know, modeling things, painting things. They've gone from that tactile place into a digital place, but it can't have that thing. You know, it's not just you, it's the species, light. They did it before anything. They were in caves and making things. They were painting on the walls. I think there's something irresistible about that. And when you don't see the tactile part of it, it you miss it. everybody and welcome to the Dagoba Dispatch and do I have front page news for you. We have two incredible interviews to share with you this week. We are speaking to the Mandalorian himself, Pedro Pascal, who will give us a little season three preview to the show. And we have the dude who helped write The Empire Strikes Back and The Force Awakens. Lawrence Kasdan will be with us to discuss the new Disney Plus docuseries he directed on Industrial Light and Magic called Light and Magic. Plus, as if all that is not enough, we've got our report from Comic-Con where we checked in with several Star Wars cosplayers to get their take on our favorite franchise. We've got you covered from every single angle as we dive right in. I am Dalton Ross, joined as always in the cockpit by Devin Kogan and Lauren Morgan. Lauren, we missed you at Comic-Con last week. I was working both Saturday and Sunday, so I I was pretty much just working Comic Con from afar. I know I feel bad. We're we're all by that time. Well, you know, we'll get into that as well. Devin had a lot of stuff to do at Comic Con. We'll get into in just a minute. But as as I'll say, as I was at the party putting down some beers, poor Devin and Lauren <laughs> were still working on all the all the Comic Con stuff. With always the Comic-Con party, I'm the person putting the photos up, but I have yet to ever be at the Comic-Con party. So am I salty? Just a little bit. I'm just going to start inserting you into photos. I'm just going to put you into famous (laughs) photos, Lauren. So you'll be hanging out with the Black Panther crew and the Guardians and all that stuff. We're going to talk some more Comic-Con, but real quickly, I always say, if you give us a review on Apple Podcasts, you get a shout out. And so we've got a few quick shout outs to give uh, for people that have reviewed uh, Dagoba Dispatch on Apple Podcasts. We got our first one from Sarcastic Brett, who wrote, so thankful for this new podcast. Please continue with the great insight, banter, and recaps. He also said some other very nice things I won't read because it's weird to read nice things about yourself. So thank you. I, I don't know, with a name like Sarcastic Brett, uh, one can't help but wonder if he's being sarcastic with his review though, Devin. I don't know what to make of that. Yeah, you're a little untrustworthy, Brett. We yeah. we don't quite know where where your head's at, but we we appreciate it all the same. Yeah, and, and uh, we do appreciate Amber Ryan, who also left a very nice review. As a lifelong Star Wars fan, I love the variety of content you provide. This is a podcast that can definitely satiate an entrenched fan, but also is accessible to someone new to the IP. I'll call out the IP. 
It's like some serious uh-huh. industry speak right there, Lauren Morgan, right? Yeah, that is true. That is true. You yeah, know. Man. Thank you very much to both of uh, both of you for those kind kind words. All right, Comic Con, we were there. At least two thirds of us were there. Devin was really in it. Uh, Devin, tell everyone about the sort of Lord of the Rings slash Marvel vortex you got pulled into. It was it was a busy week. Oh my gosh, it was crazy. You know, it was the first you know major Comic Con back. You know, since the start of the pandemic, and it was it it was in full swing. I mean, it was crazy cosplayers on the street, all of it. We had our usual EW studio setup where we had all kinds of amazing you know stars and casts come through to do interviews and take exclusive photos. Um, we were moderating a bunch of panels and covering a bunch of them. I was on Lord of the Rings and Marvel duty, so those were the those were my two you know major things. I also moderated. I did a panel for my favorite show on television right now, Evil. And yeah, it was a blast. You know, the Lord of the Rings stuff was incredible. You know, the debut of this big cast, Stephen Colbert came out to totally nerd out and moderate this panel. And then Saturday was all things Marvel, where Kevin Feige announced what we're all going to be watching and geeking out over for the next four years, basically. (laughs) So um, we've got a lot of stuff to cover between Star Wars and Marvel and Lord of the Rings. It never ends. Just it's it never ends. Yeah, I kept waiting for the the slide of like, all right, now here's phase 12 for Marvel. Uh, this is in 2048, and we are planning uh, Black Panther 12 and Ant-Man 64. I mean, that's practically the level they were at. Pretty much. It was funny. Kevin Feige came out and said, we're going to talk about the end of phase four. And everybody cheered. And he said... And hell, here's the entire lineup for Phase 5, and everybody lost their mind. And then he's like, also, do you guys want to know about Phase 6? Sure, might as well. Dalton, I know you've, you've done those big Hall H panels too, but there's something fun about, you know, being in that environment. It's almost like a rock concert. Everybody's screaming and like the, the sound system is like crazy loud and you can feel the bass in your chest. And it's, it's, it's kind of, it's just, it's a fun experience to be, be among nerds. As we, we love nerds on this show. So it's, it's always fun to get to be in that community for sure. It is a fun experience as long as you're not on the stage. Uh, I don't like moderating Hall H. Uh, <laughs> I've never moderated uh, Hall H, it, and I couldn't. I not for me. Well, I've, I've had good and bad experiences in, in that hall. But anyway, I I, I agree. I, I was in there for some Walking Dead panels. It was uh, for the final Walking Dead panel when the big surprise moment when Andrew Lincoln and Denai Gurira came out to announce uh, the upcoming show that they're going to have. And so that was super exciting, fun to do. It was fun to be in the EW suite where all the casts come to us. So any big thing happening at Marvel, excuse me, at Comic-Con, including the Marvel stuff, as soon as they're done, they came over to us, which is why Devin was stuck in our suite late on Saturday night because they had the last panel on Saturday and then came over, which was tons of fun as well. But but I'll be honest, the, the thing I really do love most about Comic-Con is not hanging at our suite and not being in any of the panels, but it's just like people watching and talking yeah. to the fans. I just love seeing all the outfits. I don't know, maybe Lauren's husband, Nick was like hiding out under one of those masks. It's unclear, but I love doing that. And I had a chance. I said, you know what? Let me just get out there and let me talk to some Star Wars fans. Let me talk to some people that are sitting here in their cosplay, in their outfits. And I brought a little, well, <laughs> poor Sammy. We had Sammy get out, like, I'm like, hey, Sammy, look, I want to do some uh, person on the street interviews. Can you get us like a good recorder? Sammy gives Devin, it it honestly, it looked like a go bag for someone like on the run from the law. Yeah. It was like, seriously, like, were there fake passports in there and like a hundred grand and like unmarked bills? Like it was heavy. It was mysterious. And I was like, oh my God, I, I, I can't like carry this all around and I can't get this, you know, 
because I'm going to be on the move. So I ended up just using my little mini recorder again. So apologies just to uh, our producer, Sammy Junio, for going to all that work for absolutely no reason. And then Devin bringing it over on a ferry to me. It was all, the whole thing was a mess. But I, I did. I brought it on a boat. <laughs> I know, literally. <laughs> everything about it sounds so sketchy. That bag, the cottage, the boat. But I did have a chance to talk to some some people in some super cool outfits. Uh, some of them were like mashups, uh, including Star Wars and other properties, which we've talked about a little before, and we love that. But it was tough because as I'm doing them, and you're gonna, we're gonna play these for you in just a minute, little little snippets and, and portions of these interviews I did. And I talked to about you know over 20 fans, I think, and um, I certainly realized a lot of them were wearing helmets. You know, you got like sort of your Mandalorians, your Stormtroopers, your Boba Fetts, all these various. And so thank God I had my little mini recorder because the big microphone wouldn't have worked all. So I kind of was like awkwardly trying to fit the mini recorder like under their mask. Like I'm kind of like bouncing up against their chin, trying to get in there so you can hear what they're saying. And then some of them even had like vocal effect boxes on. Like, you know, the way the Stormtroopers talk like... Uh, he's on level 6B. You know, it's like, so they have that effect on their voice. So I'm like, I don't know if this is going to sound cool or this is going to sound unintelligible or a little bit of both. And then the way the these vocal effect boxes work is their voice activated, I guess. Because what would happen is I was leaning in really close and occasionally it would voice activate on my question. So, you, <laughs> so my question got all these weird effects. on The whole thing was kind of awkward. It's very, very you know, TK421, do you copy? Mm. Uh, I will say this. Uh, like I said, I talked to over 20 people. Only two people said no. There's one guy uh, who I walked up to him like, hey, I'm with Entertainment Weekly and, you know, we do a podcast and we love to talk to some Star Wars people. One guy was like a, a profess- profusely sweating Boba Fett who had <laughs> just walked out of the convention center. It was clear he got out of Hall H and like, he was just like, oh, like panting. <laughs> He just got out of the Sarlacc pit. Pretty much, pretty much. And he was just like, uh, no, I, I, I'm i dying. I got to go. And I, I believe I'm like, okay, totally go for it. Then there was like a stormtrooper kind of milling about. And I said to him, same thing. Hey, can you talk to us? And he's like, oh, yeah, I, I really got to get somewhere. So I was like, oh, all right. I understand. But then the dude proceeded to take like 512 photos with different people. Because like when you're at Comic-Con, everyone's your photo. So his excuse is a little bit suspect. I'm not sure um, whether he uh, really had to get anywhere. But everyone else was super cool. Everyone else was really excited to talk about Star Wars. I will say this, as you'll hear maybe in some of these answers, um, some of them maybe like clearly weren't as knowledgeable as Star Wars as I would have thought. You know, like some people really were. Other people, maybe they were dragged along by a friend or they just wanted a costume and so that was all became a little clear. You get a few questions deep and you understand like, oh, maybe this person isn't quite at the level of knowledge I expected for someone <laughs> dressed as Ahsoka Tano. Uh, but that's that's what happens sometimes. So anyway, listen, we we, we uh, Sammy put together some of my uh, person on the street interviews with people Star Wars cosplaying. It's tons of fun. Let's take a listen to that right now. Uh, what's your name and where are you from? My name is Tyler and I'm from the Bay Area. Uh, and who are you dressed as? Osaka Tano. Oh, my name is Zachary Lopez. I'm from here, Chula Vista. Uh, I'm dressed as Luke from Hoth. Hi, my name is Isabel Mendoza. I'm from San Diego. I am dressed as a Black Widow Mandalorian form, I guess. A mashup? Yeah. Nola Solis. I'm from Hesperia. And who are you dressed as? Boba Fett. I'm Marissa Mortadi, and I'm from San Diego, California. And who are you dressed as? Grogu, Baby Yoda. <laughs> My name is uh, Classified. 
and I'm from the Imperial Stormtrooper Unit, the 500. I'm here on patrol out in front of the uh, convention center looking mm -hmm. for rebel scum. All right, what's your name and where are you from? Uh, Sergio Serratos from uh, Los Angeles. And who are you dressed as? Uh, an old, uh, one of the old guards, X-Wing pilots, left over from the rebellion. Anyone specific? Are you Porkins? Or are you just no. a coach? No, no, I'm just one of the, uh, I'm just one of one of the bunch. Yeah, yeah, nobody specific. Uh, yeah, I like to think um, I'm from the lesser-known Phantom Squadron. Huh? Uh, yeah, you know, uh, led by Wedge. You know, post uh, post uh, Return of the Jedi. That was a good time. Yeah. My name is John. I'm actually from Miami Beach, Florida. Oh, nice. Uh, and tell us who you're dressed as. Uh, X-wing pilot from uh, Star Wars. Any particular pilot? No, just one of the pilots. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Uh, well, my name is Todd Felton. I am TB10078 with the 501st Legion here in San Diego. And why don't you just tell everyone who you're dressed as? Uh, I am a scout trooper from Return of the Jedi. My name is Jeff, and I'm from Ohio. And tell us what you're dressed as. I'm a Mandalorian character named Prudy Tor. All right, we have a dynamic duo. Tell us uh, your names and where you're from. Uh, my name is Miguel Cappuccino, and I'm here from San Diego. And I'm Lucy Cappuccino, also here in San Diego. Tell us who you're dressed as. Uh, I'm dressed as a uh, mariachi lorian. And I'm also uh, well, it's like a Mexican Dorian, a heroin Mexican Mexican all right, so what's your name, where are you from? Koa Whitney, originally from Alaska, but I just moved to San Diego. All right, and tell us uh, who you're dressed as. Uh, Stormtrooper. My name is Elias, and I am from Menifee. I am dressed as the Mandalorian. What's your name and where are you from? I am Ryan Zook, I am a local to San Diego. I'm dressed as Obi-Wan Kenobi. All right, what's your name and where are you from? Isaiah Mercado from uh, Vacaville. And tell us who you're dressed as. A shadow trooper. My name's Austin. I'm from uh, Massachusetts. And? Abigail. I'm born and raised in San Diego. Oh, nice. So tell me who are you guys dressed as. Anakin Skywalker from uh, Queen Amidala. Of course. As in a pair. I love it. What's your name? Where are you from? Uh, I'm Olga. I'm from Ukraine, actually, but live in San Diego for several years. Tell us who you're dressed as. You're oh, I'm dressed as uh, Xian Twi Twilight from the uh, Mandalorian first season. My name is Bella. I'm from South Carolina. Stephanie, South Carolina. I'm dressed up as a Hello Kitty Stormtrooper. Hello Kitty Darth Vader. <laughs> What's your favorite Star Wars film? My favorite Star Wars film is Empire Strikes Back. Me too. A New Hope. New a Hope. New Hope. Revenge of the Sith. Why? It's over Anakin. I have the high ground. Come on, come on. It's, it's the turn of Anakin to Vader. It's, it's beautiful. What's your favorite Star Wars film? Uh, Empire Strikes Back. What about for you? Phantom Menace. Oh, okay. All right, we got a split here. Oh, that's a tough one with so many new ones that have come out. I mean, the, the kid in me says Return of the Jedi. Okay. Uh, but I have to say Rogue One was an amazing film. Agreed. What's your favorite Star Wars film? Ooh, it's a tie between The Last Jedi and Empire Strikes Back. Why? Um, well, they're both darker. The cinematography in The Last Jedi is so beautiful, and I find it so compelling, the relationship between Kylo Ren and the dark side. And then Empire is just great. Um, Princess Leia is my favorite character of all time, and I think it's a great movie because it shows her passion and her leadership. And I just adore it. Like, it's a classic for a reason. What's your favorite Star Wars quote? Star Wars quote? Yeah. I'm not afraid. Oh, you will be. That's mine. You will be. That's mine. Good pick. <laughs> I have a bad feeling about this. <laughs> favorite Star Wars quote. Ooh. Um, do or do not. 
There is no try. Well, you put the performance into it. I love it. That was awesome. The force be with you. That's a good one. <laughs> Same. Mine is Reva shouting out, Obi-Wan, he will find you. <laughs> <laughs> I like that too. These are not the droids you're looking for. <laughs> All right. Who shot first? Uh, Guido. Yeah. Okay. Really? Yeah. You say Greta, why? Because that's the original. That's the true version. Okay. Who shot first? Han. No question. No question about it. Han totally shot first. I mean, that's that's obvious for me because I saw it live or like before the uh, re redo uh, Greedo. No, uh, Han, forgive me. <laughs> it's hot. <laughs> Obi-Wan did. Okay. All right. If you could make your own lightsaber, what color would it be? It'd be kind of nice to have something a little different. I don't know. Like maybe orange. Uh, that's my favorite color. That's what I would do. Mine would actually be uh, turquoise. Oh, okay. Why? Uh, it's my favorite color. If you could make your own lightsaber, what color would it be? Oh, it would be red, of course. <laughs> but uh, I stick with my blaster. Yeah, right. Um, you know, it's just, it's, it's, but, that, but, those archaic weapons are just, you know, they're from a lost, a lost Jedi generation. They're, they're a dying breed. If you could make your own lightsaber, what color would it be? It would be blue, like Anakin's, just like this one. Okay. Absolutely. What about you? Um, I'd probably go red. Red? Uh-oh, dark side. That's not going to turn out well. Green. That's iconic. Luke has it. You know, it's just, and I like green, so I got to go with green. Black. <laughs> Match your outfit. <laughs> we just did a ranking of the top 100 Star Wars characters ever, and we named Princess Leia as the number one character. What are your thoughts on that? Eh, maybe top five. I don't know about number one. Who would be your number one? Maybe Luke Skywalker. Okay. I think it's all right. I mean, it's a safe. It's a safe choice. You said all right. You don't seem impressed. I, no, I am impressed. I mean, Leia's, you don't seem <laughs> Leia's a great character. I love her. Who's your? Who'd be your number one? It's probably Din Djarin. Oh, okay. All right. Fair enough. I'm okay with that, but my favorite is Adi Gallia. Really? As a Why? Jedi. Well, Adi Gallia is someone that isn't mainstream. You don't see her. Her story is short, but she's also very impactful. And she's the only Jedi with a red kyber. <laughs> I love it. No, it's great. Uh, it's a solid pick. Uh, she really, she really revolutionized uh, that. Um, the, you know, the, I think the female genre for the 1977, right, 78. Um, that was just kind of you didn't really see many women in those roles and such a powerful character like that. So she's just iconic. Yeah, hard to go wrong with that. I, I agree. She's she is a princess through and through. What about you? I agree, and I usually cosplay her too. Okay, very good. Who's your favorite Star Wars droid? Uh, my favorite Star Wars droid, it would have to be C-3PO because he's so annoying. Uh, it's Chopper. <laughs> you just made my co-host so happy. You just made her so happy. Why is it Chopper? Oh, Chopper, he is just such a little... You know, I, I don't want to swear, you know. <laughs> like, he just he doesn't give any crap, and he, he lets you know it. I love it. He's, uh... <laughs> R2-D2. I mean, he's just the best. Classic. Who's your favorite droid? Nah, I don't trust any droids. <laughs> well played. K2SO. Yes! <laughs> right answer, finally! Someone got the right answer. Awesome. Alec Guinness or Ewan McGregor? You are the ultimate authority since you're dressed right now as Obi-Wan Kenobi. Oh, come on, man. Uh, hmm. 
Let's see, yeah, both are great in their own unique ways. They each serve like their respective trilogies correctly, but Ewan McGregor is the definitive Obi-Wan for me. Ewan McGregor. Why? I love Ewan McGregor. Everyone loves Ewan McGregor, right? Yeah, he's Space Jesus. They both go for different ways, but man, Ewan McGregor is fantastic. I love the role, how he played it in the Obi-Wan Kenobi series, playing that character to a different place in his life where he's not confident with the Force and uh, really showing the struggle within him to, to overcome his own, uh, you know, being out of practice and not wanting to, you know, be in that life anymore. So I have to say Ewan McGregor, um, just because of the, the nuances and the complexity and just what a good actor he is. Alec is a foundation, right? So you can't say anyone's your favorite because they're both the same character, but they both, uh, what, Ewan McGregor tried to, tried to be Alec Guinness for Star Wars, so Alec Guinness is a foundation, I think. I think he set the land of what Star Wars is today, so I'd go with I'd go with Alec Guinness, absolutely. It's a tie. They're both amazing, so I, I, I'm, I'm gonna say split down in 50-50. Ewoks or Gungans? Nothing against the Gungans. <laughs> Ewoks, uh, you know, they, it's just uh, they started the whole you know guerrilla warfare against the Empire. Fantastic. <laughs> Ewoks. Why? Um, cute, tiny, love them, furry. I, I'm not above liking a character because they're cute. Ewoks or Gungans? And you've had some experience with Ewoks, I believe, on Endor. Oh, yeah, well, you know, both of them I would love to, you know, you know, play some target practice with, um, against. But, uh, you know, who doesn't love a, a cute, cuddly Ewok, you know, as long as um, you're not in white armor? Because if you're in white armor, well, you know, sticks and stones, they do break bones. They break armor, too. I actually don't really mind the Gungans, but I am going to have to say Ewoks. Okay, you're the closest so far to saying Gungans. Gungans. Really? Why? Um, I, yeah, I just really, yeah, I just wasn't into the Ewoks. Okay, you're not the only one. What about you? I like the Ewoks. Come on, they were short, they were cute. Kind of reminds you of teddy bears with spears. <laughs> How does Darth Vader go to the bathroom? And you should know this, of all people. Well, he, he goes into his egg pod, of course. You know, he's got a built-in, built-in John right in there. It, it's, you know, it's, it, it's the Imperial way. They, they know exactly what they're doing, you know, and it just takes off the part of the armor he needs. You know, he, he does his business and it just automatically replaces and he's good to go. You know, I mean, he's Darth Vader, of course, you know, he can do pretty much anything. I feel like he takes everything piece by piece, but I feel like he's like probably like just crispy on like his legs and everything. So he probably has like a little like, like an area, like he probably like flips it up and down. Right. And then he just, I think he just goes to the bathroom there or maybe it just burned off. <laughs> I mean, I am sure that he has some of his bits might have been burned off, so I'm sure that there's a catheter situation. There's got to be something in the suit. Otherwise, with difficulty, I imagine. <laughs> Maybe in the tube? I don't know. They just, like, suck it out afterwards. None of us know. Um, he has um, depends on him. Uh, Imperial depends. What do you think? Uh, he has an assistant. <laughs> I like to think that the, the front detaches. He has a catheter, easily, yeah. has a catheter. He has to have a catheter. Uh, I don't think he has anything from the lower half. He don't need to. What do you think? Uh, very carefully. <laughs> <laughs> the same way everybody else does. Well, you got all that equipment on. We also don't even know if that thing's even still there after Mustafar, right? 
We don't know. What That's do you... a trade secret. <laughs> what, about, what do you think? Uh, just, just no bathroom anymore. The privilege is gone. How does Darth Vader go to the bathroom? You know what, um, that's a good question, and I might have to reach out to him because uh, I'm having the same issue with his X-Wing suit, so I got to get out, and if he's hearing this podcast, hey, you know, shoot me a text or something, yeah, email. <laughs> so my favorite part of that is I asked, you know, we didn't put in everyone's answer for every, every question, but I asked everyone the same questions. And one of the questions was, as you heard, just who shot first? Very simple. The one dude that said, uh, Obi-Wan? Like, <laughs> and he was dressed as Obi-Wan. Like, that just was like, just so special. So uncivilized. Yeah. I mean, a Darth Vader Hello Kitty mashup, a Black Widow, like, like a scout a trooper matchup, a mashup. It was super cool. I, I, I had a blast doing it. I had an absolute blast, Devin. Well, I, that's the thing. It's like, I think Star Wars fans are some of the best fans in the whole world, especially the ones who hang out at, at conventions. And, you know, when I was at Star Wars Celebration, it was the same thing. You know, it's just, there's, there's a sense of joy about it, you know, especially, you know, all of us being, you know, stuck inside for the last couple of years. And um, there, there's just something really, really fun about it. And I love the, everybody seems like they're in a good mood, you know, as you you know, attested a lot, you know, you'd just be like, hey, can I talk to you for this podcast? And they'd be like, sure, sure. You know, or people like, hey, can I take your picture? You look amazing. You know, there's, I, I just, I love it so much. And I, I agree. I love the mashups. I saw some, um, some like Mandalorian Disney princesses were, which were cool. Um, and then just like a lot of classic, you know, I, there was one time where I was like trying to get into Hall H and I was just like behind the same Kylo Ren for like, like 20 minutes. And I just was like, I, I feel like we're buddies now, me and this, this tall, silent Kylo Ren. All of a sudden you're like uh, communicating with him through time and space. And like, you know, he's shirtless with very high waisted yeah, pants. Skype, exactly. <laughs> you have a force bond now. There's a porg there, you know, it's, it's, it's exactly so. <laughs> well, Dev and I had a great time at Comic-Con. We missed Lauren, but I've been thinking a lot about Lauren since I got back because I got an email the other day and the email was that I have a screener available for Lego Star Wars Summer Vacation, Lauren. I did see that. I have not yet watched it because I was, I was in the midst of doing several different things yesterday when I got the screener. So I, uh, I still have to watch that one. I'm planning on doing that. I think either tonight or tomorrow. So when you, when you get something, cause Lauren loves the Lego star Wars, when you get something like that, you just like, well, I could race through this now, but I really want to sit and savor this and enjoy it at night. Once I'm like off the clock, is that how that works? It's mostly just if it, especially if it's like a like, like my daughter really likes the Lego Star Wars like shorts that they have on uh, Disney Plus. So when I see something like that, and she really liked the the Star Wars Halloween special, and uh, so I was just like, oh, she'll probably like this, so I'll save that one for her. Because there's some screeners I get, like you know, I got the Light and Magic screeners, and I was like, well, I'm going to watch these right now. Uh, but there's other things when, like, sometimes I get a screener, I'm like, ah, the family might enjoy this one, so I'll I'll I'll, I'll pause. Did you ever play the Lego Star Wars games? Oh, I've I've been playing Lego the Lego Star, uh, Skywalker Saga game for probably since it shortly got released. I've kind of done like the bulk of it, so now it's like you're really like getting into the nitty gritty aspects of it. And then also, my daughter made me uh, learn how to play Animal Crossing, so I've been doing that. Recently. Yes, but it's funny though because like it, like I was playing so much Lego Star Wars during uh, Obi Wan Kenobi that there was a scene where like Leia was going up a ladder and die you and i thought oh she's getting a kyber brick 
And it was like, literally, <laughs> was just like the way I was thinking about things was like, I was like, oh, yeah, you know, she's probably going to get a Kyber brick. And I was like, she's not getting a Kyber brick. Nope. So that was like, just kind of the way I was thinking about it. Yeah, that Lego Star Wars Skywalker saga came out and uh, Lauren and I were just texting each other and, and just like totally geeking out over it because it's it's yeah. so much fun. It's so delightful. I grew up on the Lego Star Wars video game franchise and I it's magical. I had never played them before and oh. I and I hadn't played any video games in a long time. So at the beginning, I was really just terrible at it. Like, you know, I'd be playing as Obi-Wan and I'd accidentally kill Luke and, you know, all sorts of things. So I finally have reached some a level of proficiency. Like like when we you would have like space battles, I'm like, what am I shooting at? I don't even know what to shoot at. And now it's like I've, I'm, I can get through these things a lot faster. So I have I have achieved a level of proficiency finally with it. Let me tell you something. Having kids is a pain in the ass. Those little <laughs> bastards will be such a pain in so many ways. But there are advantages to having kids. And probably the biggest advantage I can think of of having a kid is that when you have a spouse that doesn't really necessarily understand why you want to play with toys as a grown man <laughs> or video games, you just give them to your kid and then you can play with them that way. So like all of a sudden I was allowed to buy AT-ATs again and things like that and bring into the house. <laughs> and so basically I got my son a DS back in the day. And this course, all the old Star Wars uh, Lego games on the DS. Mm -hmm. Yep. And basically I was getting it for myself, but like I gave it to him and then limited his screen time just so <laughs> I could play the game. That's devious. That's yeah. devious. Oh, God. Well, I bought the Skywalker Saga thinking my daughter would like to play it. And then I basically just started playing yeah, it. And so, you know, she's like, oh, mommy's playing Legos again. That's it. That's where it goes. All right. Maybe you maybe you can give us your, your review of Lego Star Wars Summer Vacation next week, uh, Lauren. But mm -hmm. this week, you mentioned another show that has just come out on the Disney Plus Light and Magic. This is a uh, documentary series on industrial light and magic. Obviously, the special effects house that was formed to start making the special effects for the first Star Wars movie and then kept making effects for Star Wars movies, then kept making effects for basically like any movie with effects in it. It's directed by Lawrence Kasdan. We're going to have him on in just a little bit. I spoke with him all about it. It was tons of fun. But uh, Lauren, you and I have watched it. Give me mm -hmm. sort of your thoughts on on what you saw. I, well, I always have liked the uh, background of like, you know, special effects in that. And especially like, it's very interesting over the course of the documentary and it's six parts is that you see how uh, industrial magic really started. And a lot of it was prop works and models and like little people building the model of the Death Star and then blowing it up in the parking lot or that kind of stuff. And then you see how George Lucas is sort of aggravated with the current state of like, you know, with film and you're shooting on film and everything's sort of so inefficient and how his push for uh, digital effects and just to digitize the whole filmmaking process really kind of revolutionized everything. And it, personally, for me, it was very interesting to see as they're kind of moving towards uh, the push to digital and then we wind up with the eventual creation of Pixar, which, you know, we all know is, a, you know, a famous animation studio is now. For me personally, as a photo editor, seeing how the creation of Photoshop came out uh, in the middle of all of this, that was kind of fascinating because it was just John Knoll and his brother just kind of tooling around and how, like, honestly, the creation of once you could digitize images, 
how that just sort of blew everything wide open. And for me personally, I used, I've used Photoshop almost every day for the last 22 years. So that was kind of a personal, very interesting aspect of it. And then seeing how the digital effects kept changing and changing and then, you know, how they used almost everything digital in the prequels, but that didn't really work out to the best effect for the actors and stuff and how they took that and then they just kept pushing and then you wind up with the volume, which is really sort of the culmination of what George Lucas was imagining all the way back at the beginning. So it's kind of an interesting progression to see how it just sort of started from props and model making and stuff. And then this push into digital and then sort of this push to the volume, which is a little bit of a revolutionary thing. So I found the whole entire thing pretty fascinating. Yeah. I, I, I think what I'd say about this show is, is um, I don't know if it's for everyone, but yeah. it certainly was for me. First off, if you're interested in anything behind the scenes, it's great. And the treasure trove of video and photos and things they have from those early days of making those movies is just to die for. And then it's just like, you know, just the magic of how do they do that? I I talk about this in the interview you guys are going to hear in just a little bit with Lawrence Kasdan. And like, I just think that there's like, Devin, I'm curious because, you know, you're so tied into all the Marvel stuff in addition to Star Wars and everything with this, you know, green screen and giant effects and this and that. And I'm curious whether it's like some of it's an age thing or not, but like I always wonder like when I watch this stuff and I'm just so much more drawn to practical effects, mm -hmm. models, stop motion, things of that nature as opposed to all digital. And I don't know if that's because it's just reaching from the nostalgia of my youth or I don't know if it's because I feel it's more magical in the sense that when everything's done on a computer, there's no how did they do that, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Like they did on a computer. Like, But when... Before you had that, there is was the thought like, wow, how did they how did they make that effect? How did they make that house implode on itself in Poltergeist? How did they make those faces melt in Raiders of the Lost Ark? You know, like that to me is a little more magical in a way, and that's why I personally always gravitate more towards the practical stuff. But Devin, I'm curious about you in, in that regard. I could not agree more. I have always been obsessed with practical effects. Some of my, as a, as a journalist, my all-time favorite interviews are always with like production designers, special effects teams, costume designers. I love geeking out about the little tiny details about things. Um, you know, I know one of the people who's featured in in ILM is Phil Tippett who's absolutely mm -hmm. legendary um you know he's the he's one of one of my all-time favorite you know like credits on screen is he's the dinosaur supervisor for um jurassic park which is an incredible title but he created all of the you know kind of robots and puppets for that and then he's also famous for you know uh creating the atats and the tauntauns and all of these things that we come to associate with star wars and there's something that's you know you know, I was born in the early 90s. I was a kid when the 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 prequels came out. And there's a reason that the original Star Wars trilogy still looks so good and the prequels feel a little dated. I think there's something really magical about what human performance can lend to these things. I mean, I think, you know, Yoda is the classic example. I've always been a Muppets nerd. You know, Frank Oz is incredible. And I think the reason Yoda is works so well in Empire Strikes Back is, you know, it's these little human details and movements. And where and, and I imagine as an actor, that must be so much easier and more fun to be able to react to, you know, I'm, I'm actually acting opposite, you know, another person, even if it's a puppet or a, you know, a creature or stop motion or whatever, as opposed to staring at a tennis ball. And I think you see that I got to see a little bit of light and magic at uh, Star Wars Celebration. And that was one of the things you, they talked about was, you know, there's something the the human hand just lends it such 
such a beautiful quality that I think you can't quite, um, I mean, technology has, you look at, you know, what we can do in 2022, it's magical, but, but it's still, there's something, something about, you know, like actual eye contact and, and all of those fun little details that I, I, I totally geek out over. I still think the human eye is more sophisticated than digital technology will ever be. And no matter how good digital technology is, the human eye can still tell when it's not quite real. Um, and so like for me, I'm also someone who in- really enjoys practical effects. And I have actually seen a lot of the original Star Wars props and the detail that went into them and like the artistry and like, you know, these were people who are sculptors and you mentioned Phil Tippett and he's got a big sort of chunk in the show and especially uh, in Jurassic Park where it was like he was originally going to be doing everything with like a lot of a lot of the stuff with the dinosaurs uh, was supposed to be stop motion and then they kind of talked about how the digital process kind of like the, I think his name is uh, Spaz, I can't remember his full name, was that the person who was working, uh, like trying to animate and do CGI of the dinosaurs and how his uh, kind of, he kind of did some like revolutionary work with the CGI of it. And that kind of wound up pushing uh, Phil's work to the side, but then Spielberg still brought him on because Phil had such an understanding of how animals move and this kind of stuff. So it was really kind of wound up being a combination of the digital, but also someone who had such an experience and practical to make that really work together. So it's fascinating that way. Yeah, I'm sort of of the mind that when it comes to like CGI, I think it works best when it's a garnish and not the whole Mm -hmm. meal. I think it works best when you have like a major set, you know, that most of the set is there and then you can just sort of fill in the details, like little things that you can't make work practically. You know, you know me, I'm a Lord of the Rings geek. Part of the reason I think the original um, Peter Jackson Lord of the Rings trilogy is so great and I think part of the reason people maybe don't love the Hobbit series as much is because, you know, almost all of those locations are actual places in New Zealand that you can go to and the horses are real and everything's and the 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 makeup on the orcs is real and then, you know, you can do things like Gollum can be in, in, um, completely yeah. virtual and, you know, fix things and add things here and there. But the bulk of it is you're not creating an entire setting and an entire, um, you know, kind of story completely digitally. So it's, yeah. it's it's fascinating. And they used a lot of bigotures. Like I remember they called them bigotures where like they were actually like model sets that they used. So oh, yeah. it wasn't really just like a fully digital thing. For me, the most jaw-dropping film like over the past, 10 years from that effect is Mad Max Fury Road because, Mm -hmm. and that's not to say they didn't use digital stuff. They did, but they use so many practical effects that it took your breath away. Like how are they doing this at like seemingly a hundred miles per hour and like just do crazy death defying stunts and people on poles and just hanging off cars and just, and that was just, had that all been done digitally, it would not have had that same impact whatsoever. So it's amazing yeah. to see it. And the series is great. And like, you know, there's like, I mean, a good, just, I feel like there's a good 10, 15 minutes just on the Tauntaun alone. So, I mean, like already, yes. you know. <laughs> and the and the creation of the Tauntaun was kind of disturbing because they were talking about getting like fetal calf heads and there was like maggots involved. And you're like, wow, you guys went deep on this one. <laughs> it's very <laughs> strange, you know. But I, I liked when we were talking about like the early Star Wars stuff, how much it was really just like a bunch of people who were artistically inclined figuring out this stuff. And it was like very much building models. And it was people of like all disparate kind of talents being brought together for this one thing. And they kind of all sort of spurred each other on into, you know, kind of revolutionizing the industry. 
Yeah, that's one of the kind of one of the thing interesting things about ILM is it's very this sort of like rebel spirit where they were all just like, we don't really know how to do this. Uh, I guess mm-hmm. we'll figure it out. Um, when I was at Star Wars Celebration, they told a great story about, you know, like some some big execs coming to visit. And, um, you know, they were busy like dropping a refrigerator from a crane just like to <laughs> see what kind of weird sound it made. And the execs were like, oh, my God, what are we paying for? <laughs> but yeah, there's this idea of like making this like artistic rebel spirit that I think allows for creativity and that's become so iconic over the years there's that one horror movie element of the series where they're about to sell pixar off and you're like no don't do it this is gonna be worth millions of dollars don't sell it for you know 57 million or whatever it is to steve jobs George Lucas was just kind of like yeah you know yeah we didn't really have a need for it like we're doing other stuff and i was like no yeah. uh it's it's listen it's tons of fun to watch especially if you're in, interested in anything behind the scenes but uh instead of hearing us go on and on about light and magic how about we hear from the director of the series the guy who also helped write movies like The Empire Strikes Back, Raiders of the Lost Ark, The Force Awakens, and Solo. I was able to sit down and chat with Lawrence Kasdan, and we will play that interview for you, as well as Devin's conversation with the Mandalorian himself, Pedro Pascal. It is all coming up right after this quick break. Lawrence, let, let's start by going back in time. You're an up-and-coming writer, and the first two film jobs you get hired on are The Empire Strikes Back and Raiders of the Lost Ark, two of the greatest films ever made. Uh, what was it like starting your career off that way? Well, it was kind of amazing. It had taken me seven years to sell two scripts that I had written, two spec scripts. And the second one was purchased by Steven Spielberg. And the day I met Steven Spielberg, he said, I'm going to do a movie with George Lucas and I want you to meet him. Are you okay with with that? I said, yes, I'm very okay with that. And we walked over and we saw George and he gave me the, you know, he gave the bare bones of what Raiders would be. And I wrote Raiders before. And um, when I finished it after about six months, I took it to George. And before he read it, he said, I'm having trouble with the sequel to Star Wars. Will you help me with that? And I said, well, don't you want to read the script first? And he said, I'm going to read it tonight. If I don't like it, I'm calling you up tomorrow and taking back this offer. (laughs) I thought that was perfectly fair. But he did like it. And so I found myself unexpectedly writing First Raiders and then Empire in quick succession. That was in heaven. As a writer on those films... How much exposure and awareness did you have at the time with the folks at Industrial Light and Magic who were, you know, going to ultimately bring these scenes to life? At that time, almost none. And I, I was busy writing a lot of things, but I visited Empire one time in England. I never was on the set of Raiders. And so I was seeing like people do the finished product. And I was amazed. And I was amazed by ideas that I had had, George and Stephen had had, you know, in a little house in Sherman Oaks when we worked it out. And now suddenly it's on screen and for a price. And what I didn't know at that time was who these people were. But over the years, I've used them. I've made other movies there. Um, and I saw that the, the, the group was a group of geniuses. And I loved 
the spirit that they had with each other. And it continued right through the generations. And you can see there's a real affection in these people for them, for the, each other, for their experience. They're very grateful for having the experience of working there, being around these equally you know, brilliant people. So I found that all kind of moving. And as the years went by, I got to see and know more about them. And then, of course, this was the deep dive yeah. that I just really wanted to take. Where did these people come from? How did they wind up at ILM? It's, you know, when I watch the episodes, Lawrence, looking at the early years of ILM, and I see all these practical, what would now be considered, you know, primitive effects with the models and the stop motion and the matte paintings. Right. I, there's a fondness and often on my part, a preference I have towards some of those practical effects over the much smoother CGI we see today. Is that just my childhood nostalgia talking or is there something special yeah. and magical about that old school method of doing things? There is. And I don't think it's nostalgia at all. I think it's, you know, many things in our world and our culture have gone from being handmade with their fingers, with their hands, with their eyes, you know, modeling things, painting things. They've gone from that tactile place into a digital place. And sometimes the digital stuff is brilliant, but it can't have that thing. And I think what you're talking about is an affection. It's a, you know, it's not just you, it's the, the species liked. They did it before anything. They were in caves and making things. They were painting on the walls. I think there's something irresistible about that. And when you don't see the tactile part of it, it you miss it. Well, I think it's, you know, a part of it is also the how do they do that? Like stuff looks amazing now, like you're saying, but we kind of know, I mean, I don't know how to create it on computer, but I know they're doing it on a computer. When I watch those old movies, you know, how did they do the Tauntaun? You know, how did they, how yeah. did they do these things? There's that, that's the magic for me. Well, that's what I wanted this show to be about. And not only how did they do it, because of the patience and the art involved is astounding, but also how did they feel about it? I wanted to know what kind of person can do what Phil Tippett does with that tauntaun an hour after hour, moving the tauntaun a fraction of an inch and then climbing on his stomach under the set and going to the other tauntaun, you know, and... Uh, it's just astounding the patience and the dedication that they brought to all of those undertakings. Now there are people sitting at computers doing digital stuff and it's painstaking work, but for people who've been around a little while, you miss that feeling of like, Oh, where's the room where they did this? What's sort of, I mean, there's, there's so many, but I'm going to ask you to pick out one. What is sort of a, a favorite effect of yours from a Star Wars film that that still sort of gives you chills or just visually just knocks your socks off as you're going through uh, and looking at all this stuff over again to make your series? What's the one that really impresses you almost the most, either with the, the work it took them to get it done or just the way it looks on the screen? Well, there are millions and, you know, it, but I have to go back to A New Hope because that was what blew my mind and everybody in the theater around me in 1977 and so many of these people that worked at ILM subsequently they were seeing that movie around the world and saying how'd they do that why is it more exciting than anything I've ever seen 
why I, I, they know that there have been spaceships in movies since the beginning. Why is this so dynamic? Why is it so fast? Why is it so energetic? And so everything that's in New Hope is the seed for everything that follows, you know? And they found out different, better ways to do it. But nothing can equal. That's like being there when Thomas Edison invented the light bulb. It's the first shot too, right? Like, I mean, like just, I, I was six years old in a theater when that came out and the, the underneath the Star Destroyer, when it goes across your screen, you're like, what is happening? Yes, and I love it. It's in the show that you see how they were thinking and how Edlin was figuring it out. And like, what did it look like when they first tried it? And what, you know, it's so simple. And like you, that's my favorite effect ever. Yeah. It's, you know, when I was a kid, there, there was a scene in Raiders of the Lost Ark that literally gave me nightmares. I'm guessing you know what scene it is, don't you? Well, tell me. It's the, the face melting scene. Uh, what was it at which you guys get into in, in this in this great series? What was it like for you to, to see that scene come to life or death, I guess, as it were? <laughs> <laughs> it was amazing that they had figured out such a good way to do it. And, you know, Stephen will be the first one to tell you that. And he says it in the show. I think I didn't know what to do, but I went to them and said, how can we do this? And that's really the story of ILM, because these images don't come full blown from people. They come as an idea and they're dependent on the people at ILM to make it real. And that happened with that very tactile. It's a wax figure melting under the heat. That's a very powerful. When people say to me, what do you think about the evolution of effects? I think, well, it didn't get any better than that. That one moment when the head melts. Because everything else, you sort of, you know, as we go along, you think they can do anything. But when that movie came out, you didn't think that. You thought, what? What just happened? You know? That's exactly what I thought as I was hiding, as I was hiding under the sheets, <laughs> watching. Um, what was the most, listen, you, you've had a lot of experience working with this company, obviously, over the years, over a long time. But you're you're going in deep to research it. For the series, what's the most interesting thing you learned about ILM while making this series? Maybe something you didn't know or something you knew, but you didn't sort of realize the, 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 the way it worked or the extent of it. Well, there was something that I hoped. I didn't know it, and I, but I was hoping. It seemed to me, being on the outside of it and being around it for so long, that this community that makes up ILM and now it encompasses people my age to people who are very young, you know. But that community has been infused with a kind of generosity toward each other. It's a team sport. And I suspected that. I hoped that. And I wanted to know, if you go back to the original people and follow that story up to the present day, what will you see? And what I saw, and I think is in the show, is people. People who got an idea in their head very young, what they wanted to do, and then found themselves in the perfect place to do those things. So it's astounding to see a 10-year-old, you know, Ken Ralston or something, make a movie, and he winds up here where 50 years later, he, that's what he did with his life. I, I know, speaking of the people, I know, you know, being a reporter that it's it's difficult sometimes when you're asking people to recall things from decades ago. And sometimes, yeah, you ask two different people about something, you get two different, sometimes contradictory stories. Yes, what was it like talking to, 
Yeah. So what was it like talking to the creative types like a Phil Tippett or Dennis Murin to get their sort of memories about big events and effects and things of that nature? Well, that was my main goal. And we I would prep for each interview. So I knew a lot about that person and um, who they were there at the same time, who was there with them. Who were their friends at that time? Who did they, you know, now consider a friend 40 years later? That's kind of amazing that they could work together and do hard work for so long and really feel this is a friendship that will last forever. I love that feeling, generosity of affection between them. And I sort of hoped that would be what it was. And then it turned out to be much more than that. I, I, listen, for someone like me, who I'm, I'm sitting here, I can like look at my Making of Empire Strikes Back book right here. It's like having that. Tr- yeah, I, I'm so jealous of you, Lords, because, you know, it looks like they were really good about documenting things with all the behind the scenes footage and photos they had when they're making these early films. What yeah. was it like digging through all that archival stuff? Well, we I had a great producing group from Imagine and the freelance producers that came on and the research people and the archivists, they're astounding. And it does happen, like you say, Lucasfilm is probably the most well-documented enterprise like this ever, because George Lucas decided when he was making A New Hope that he wanted a good Rexy when he's making American Graffiti. He wanted there to be a record of the process. And he, full with full um, commitment, always had people you know documenting it and we have access to things that no one's seen and that's kind of thrilling when you see i love it when they're talking about an effect and then you see when the effect was first drawn and how it changed and i find that amazing i find these people amazing you know and phil tippett says yeah they said they wanted this kind of creature so i sat down and did a few of these things in an hour you know and you see these incredible drawings, any which of one could have become the Tauntaun, you know? Yeah. And you just say, oh, wow, I couldn't, if I spent my whole life, I could never draw a picture that way. <laughs> Neither could I. Neither could I. Uh, Lawrence, I know you got to run. It's been awesome to talk to you. I could do this all day, man. Thanks so much for hanging out. Thank you, Dalton. It's a pleasure to talk to you. All right, our thanks to Lawrence Kazdan. And now let's check out Devin's conversation with Mando himself, Pedro Pascal. I'm so excited to talk to you. You literally just got off stage at Star Wars Celebration. What was that like to, to walk out on that stage and, and see all those fans? Whew, it was unbelievable. We, I haven't done anything like that in such a long time. I, the, the, my first Star Wars Celebration experience was in 2009, at the start of 2019. Uh, in Chicago. And I remember f- that feeling it was like being on the receiving end of a jet. Um, it was amazing. So to get to experience that again and um, just uh, see so many people together again, um, celebrating something, it was very moving. And um, getting to be an audience member myself in that panel and um and and just listening to everything that everyone had to say and to just i don't know kind of uh, bask in the love of it was pretty damn good yeah and you also had uh brendan and latif which is so cool what are some like the physical things that you guys talk about about like 
how do you, how do you bring this character to life? How do you find those commonalities between those those you guys as three actors? There are no commonalities between Latif and I because he defies gravity. Uh, he is one of the most expertly athletic human beings. I met him years ago on a movie called uh, Kingsman: The Golden Circle. Uh, I was with him again on a movie called Triple Frontier, and then um, when I knew that he was going to be putting on the suit for this, I I was like. <laughs> I was like, yes, I'm going to look so cool, you know? And um, it's been a collaborative process from the beginning. I think that I was given the opportunity to establish very sort of um, physical specificity in, in, in some ways um, at, the, at the start of the show. But I'd be lying if I didn't say I wasn't observing and picking up um, from, from, from what they're doing and, and handing over so much of it as well. Um, they do the heavy lifting. That's awesome. They make it that collaborative process. Yeah. And, um, you know, I know we got to see a little bit of a trailer. Um, I know you've got a new ship. How is it piloting the, the new ship? It's pretty rad. That's all you can say? That's all I'm going to say. I want, I, I mean, it's, it's, we, we got to see the, the, the ship in the book of Boba Fett. Um, and now, you know, that little uh, pod uh, is no longer empty. And so I think you can imagine the fun that can be had there. Absolutely. So what's it been like for you, you know, the way this show, the show has really sort of grown and, and, and this character in the story has become so iconic and joined this pantheon of, of the larger Star Wars saga. What's it been like for you to sort of watch this fandom swell around this story for the last couple of years? It's been amazing. I think it's, it's, it's been exactly as one would imagine it to be. Um, I think that it was so easy to trust how much uh, John Favreau and Dave Filoni love Star Wars and taking that love and developing new ways of telling Star Wars stories. So that's a big safety net. And then, um, but there were still things like, will this character be compelling? Um, uh, will people want to follow him through these adventures? Will um, the richness of this, you know, parent-child relationship really reach everyone. So to see all of that um, surpass expectation is 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 really exciting. And then it's 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 kind of listening to everybody talk today really helped me understand things even on an even deeper level. Where um, to kind of like dig down into the d deepest part of yourself to to make either a large or a small contribution to something in the character that will help audiences connect and experience it is um special and it wouldn't work if you didn't kind of dig that deep and um there's as an actor there's so many different ways to obviously experience the gratification of a performance you know and um so on this one I've discovered ways of, that I had could never have expected a minimalism, a kind of like surgical approach to it in post. And so it's been a really special learning experience. And, and, and just as, as one has to go just as deep as you would in any other kind of character. And I guess I didn't expect that to be the case. That makes sense. And one of the things I love about this show is you've got such a deep bench. You've got so many amazing actors showing up, sometimes just for fun little cameos. Who's yeah. your white whale of like an actor that you would love to to see join the Star Wars universe with you? One that hasn't yeah. uh, come on yet? 
There's too many. Uh, the first thing that came, came to mind, I remember being a kid, and I remember seeing uh, Tina Turner show up for Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. And, um, and, and, and I guess to have some iconic musician, you know, to step in, to surprise us with something would really be kind of unbelievable because I remember how beautifully that, that worked. And, and, and there's so much as, as Star Wars as all of this Star Wars is, I think it, it's in such relationship to classic movies that we're all so familiar with. You pick, you see Blade Runner, you see, you know, aliens. Um, there's so many, so many different things. So, um, George Miller and, uh, and, and so anyway, yeah, some, some, some incredible rock star of, of days of old. So beautiful one. Tina Turner, if that could happen. But, but. I'd watch that. I'd watch Tina Turner in Star Wars. <laughs> I'd retire. I'd be like, <laughs> we don't want that. <laughs> But for you, I mean, you know, you talked about how the, this role has, has, you know, been such a huge part of your life for these past couple of years. What's been the most rewarding part of, of playing this character? I guess being a part of this family and coming here today and being on a panel like that and, and being on the receiving end of adoring fans, not for me, but for it, for, 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 for sort of like the love of, of, of storytelling and to just be a piece of something that is so big for me and my development as as a moviegoer uh, growing up, and 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 also within the the love that everybody has for it, like I I get to be a part of that. It's crazy, and I get to <laughs> I'm the closest one to uh, Grogu, so you know that's kind of the biggest prize. Our thanks to Lawrence Kasdan and Pedro Pascal for joining us this week. And as a tease, we will have more Mandalorian cast members with us next week. So get pumped for that. And we would be super pumped if you could please tell your friends about the podcast and follow the podcast and rate the podcast and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you do leave us a review, we'll give you a shout out right here on the pod. We really do appreciate all the kind words. Also, hit us up on social media. You can follow Entertainment Weekly on all socials at EW on Twitter and at Entertainment Weekly everywhere else. You can also tag and follow us at Dalton Ross, at Devin Kogan, and at Morg Lore. Thanks so much, everyone. See you next week. This episode of Dagobah Dispatch is hosted by Dalton Ross, Devin Kogan, and Lauren Morgan. Produced by Chanel Johnson and Sammy Junio. Edited by Sammy Junio. Full episode transcripts are available at EW.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>